1: concern about income inequalities, race relations at a boiling point, riots in the streets, cries on the left for massive allocations of federal money for housing and poverty reduction programs, social scientists and professional activists touting theories and pet proposals for projects that will supposedly eradicate poverty if only enough money is thrown at them, tensions between local and state officials in the White House and between bureaucrats and the poor people they claim to be helping, factionalism roiling the left as new players challenge the Democratic Party establishment. Concerns about the independence of the Federal Reserve. Economic uncertainty and balance of trade issues, leading to tensions with our supposed allies. The once iconic General Electric facing public image problems. Big industrial unions like the United Automobile Workers losing clout to unions representing white-collar government workers. The perennial debate about what we now call the universal basic income, UBI. The rise of the expert class and the backlash against it. St. Louis as the poster child of racial and class tensions. Acrimony between presidential appointees and the president himself. A naive, self-serving belief among progressives that all we need to do to solve every social problem is to hearken back to the New Deal and outdo it by going big, big, big on social spending. Outright cries for socialism in America. Debates on the right and within the GOP about which political path to follow. Surrendering to the administrative state or remaining committed to the free market and personal liberty. Sound familiar? But wait, this isn't 2020. It is the period of roughly 1964 to 1972 that journalist and historian Amity Schley's chronicles in her 2019 book, Great Society, A New History. Given the unprecedented gargantuan levels of federal spending we are seeing these days designed to deal with the economic fallout from the coronavirus pandemic and the ongoing debate revolving around the Black Lives Matter movement, Schley's book is exquisitely well-timed. Now is the time to revisit the Great Society era and consider what worked and what ended up destroying poor neighborhoods and the lives of those in them. Schles also introduces us to many of the now standard public policy types whose latter-day incarnations we all live with today. There is the influential gadfly author who alerts Americans to this or that social problem, Michael Harrington. The charismatic super bureaucrat who oversells his federal programs and rides roughshod over those at the local level, Sergeant Triver. The memo-producing social scientist for hire who loves government more than life itself. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the young activist who rides the waves of social upheaval only to be sidelined by those more ruthless, effective, and radical than he, Tom Hayden, the union leader who revels in conferring with American presidents and cultivating allies on the left, even as his industry is being gutted by foreign competitors, Walter Reuther of the UAW. We know these types by now, and Schles remind us how we got used to such figures. Never was a better time to look back at a key period in the history of big government and to consider how we can avoid replicating the counterproductive policies that help create the very conditions that are generating the current outcry about income disparities and racial injustice. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope G. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Amity Schles, the author of the 2019 book Great Society, A New History. Thank you for joining us today, Amity. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you very much. I'm delighted. You start off the book with an introduction of a real-life character who thinks to himself, the Democratic Party could be, should be, socialists. To fail to try out socialism was to lack compassion. readers might think, oh, this is obviously Bernie Sanders, but it is not. Could you tell us who it was?
2: The character was a wonderful man named Michael Harrington, who believed in socialism. He was a public socialist, didn't beat around the bush. He did not believe in the Soviet Union and its version of socialism, but he believed in the ideal, and he wanted the U.S. government to try it out, or as much of it as he thought he could get the U.S. government to try out. And to his uh, surprise, I would imagine, uh, he landed right in the office of an important um, deputy of President Lyndon Johnson. That was Sergeant Shriver and uh, thought, well, I'll sign on and work in an office. Mr. Shriver, Lee will leads. It was just being created actually at that point um, called the office of economic opportunity and try and figure out how to uh, get some good ideas into our new poverty program. This would be um, in the period of Lyndon Johnson after Kennedy. Um, But uh, one way that Michael Harrington came to prominence was he wrote a kind of hillbilly elegy of his own era, a book about poverty in America as abiding poverty, as exemplified by Appalachia, called The Other America. And that, that book had come to the attention of Sergeant Shriver's family, to Sergeant Shriver was the late President Kennedy's brother-in-law, and two White House aides. Uh, and so he was kind of a, a poverty, they said, a poverty expert and a poverty star, Michael Harrington, and um, excited to help out. And I think the administration was excited to have someone important um, working with it.
1: And Harrington had this it was a, it was a bestseller and it made a huge impact and it sort of put on the radar screen of policymakers and the public, which is a rare intersection that sometimes they don't always happen at the same time. Um, You mentioned Sergeant Shriver and he's one of the major characters in your book. And one of the things that's fascinating about him is he's what I would call a super bureaucrat, that he, he was sort of a star of the policymaking field. And and, but it, it all went wrong for him in many ways. Could you talk about Sergeant Shriver? One of the aspects of him that's fascinating is his that he, unlike Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who is another of the f- figures in your book, that Shriver, Moynihan had a working class background of his own and knew poverty firsthand, where Shriver was rather a creature of privilege. Could you talk about the difference between the two men a little bit?
2: Oh, between Moynihan and Shriver. Yes, please. Uh, I actually don't think there was as big a difference as as uh, one might one might um, imagine. It, they were both pretty good minds, and I will say minds know no class. Minds choose their class uh, in the United States. Um, it's harder to you know to get to the class you choose sometimes, but it's amazing how often they do. Sergeant Shriver was from a sometime rich family. He went to Catholic boarding school and other boarding school, and uh, he married into an important family, the Kennedys, mm. um, but who a few generations back hadn't been so wealthy themselves they had to make it in America. They were Irish-Americans. Um, and uh, Moynihan was born I- I- in to a highly intelligent mother, um, he he didn't look out in the father department, and so and he did know poverty in his boyhood. They were evicted, the Moynihan's, from apartments, um, but he classed himself up by education, uh, pretty seriously, um, and and both of them were involved in making policy in the '60s. Shriver and Moynihan um I, it would be wonderful to do this um on a on a full- time Catholic show for uh Catholics to analyze the nuances among the Catholics, but a big part of Harrington's Catholicism was that he had come um for uh, i'm going back to Harrington now a third Catholic mm-hmm. um, that was that he had attended a Catholic school in St Louis, a famous Catholic high school so you take a reforming um humanistic heomycery impulse um uh, originating, you know, in in Catholicism and take it out into policy without religion. That's what you see um, in a lot of the greatest idealists of the 60s. Yeah,
1: it was interesting that the the theme of idealism comes across in your book, and it's it's kind of tragic because you discuss, for example, Walter Ruther and the fact that he that he was just so determined to improve human society that he, he, cre- he backed programs that really immiserated people further. Could you discuss Walter Ruther a little bit?
2: Well, I will say all these were lovable characters whose names people uh, lived in the 60s as adults knew very well. They're on the radio every night or on the television. Um, uh, um, they all meant well, and they all hurt the people they loved. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, Ruther um, was union leader, Mm -hmm. the leader of the kind of bold union, the United Auto Workers, in a seemingly infallible, unstoppable industry, the U.S. auto making industry. And Ruther had his number one goal was to to win from automakers. a decent life for his workers. That's the way he would have put it, the auto workers. And there was something horrible about the U.S. assembly line. It was not pleasant. Um, so what could we get? Uh, he started there. Health care, vacation, decent pay, decent uh, treatment by foreman. And then, you know, Ruther was really a social democrat or a socialist. You can call him what you like. N- uh, none of the gentlemen we're talking about was for the Soviet Union. Yeah. They didn't want to replicate that. This was the Cold War. They sort of their argument was they were preventing a radicalization of the United States and arrive and an arrival of a Soviet dictatorship by developing a social democracy or capitalist socialism. And Luther expanded and said, "I'm I'm going to try and get to all workers, including African Americans." He was a great um, friend. One could even say mentor of Martin Luther King. He actually paid the sent the bail money. Um, to Birmingham jail to get Martin Luther King out uh, from the jail where he wrote his famous letters. Um, In fact, it was a Kennedy, I believe Bobby Kennedy, who asked Ruther to help. And if I'm remembering correctly, I'm not sure this is in the book. Ruther said, the auto union leader, why should he bail Martin Luther King out? Ask Kennedy. And and Kennedy said, you're the one to whom I knew I could turn because the UAW had plenty of cash and Walter Ruther had the heart for it. So Ruther supported all kinds of groups outside unions because he believed in helping man and mankind and because he thought he could expand his union space. Uh, Grateful um, people would join his union. Black Americans would begin to be comfortable in the UAW, which they weren't always made comfortable, right, up until that point. So um, youth would feel comfortable in the UAW. uh, Walter Ruther wanted a youth branch of the UAW as well
1: even and college youth. Yeah, you made an interesting point about his relationship with, with, with Martin Luther King is that he was the only white speaker at a at one of the major civil, civil rights demonstrations. He was one of the iconic events and he was the only white man, spe- white person speaking. And I think that speaks to the trust that he was held in. That was interesting.
2: And you right. talk- that would be Ruther was white. He yeah, spoke at exactly. an event that was largely African-American, right? and then they went over to the White House together and you can see uh, uh, in the tape, um, Ruther and King going together. So King saw Ruther as an ally and he was an ally to King. Um, so so there you are, a very interesting relationship. I think I think Ruther misled King. King was first and above all a Christian and he proceeded from that into civil rights. Um, and Ruther kind of encouraged him to um, also take on the North. You know, you think of the civil rights struggle as in the South. Um, it was broadened to the North. It was the Northern Civil Rights Movement, the Northern Protest Movement. The question is, what do you protest? And at first, um, in a famous situation, um, King went to Chicago to protest housing conditions. Specifically, he wanted to go after bad landlords. That's kind of a, a socialist or social democratic approach. But you can see um, King grappling with supply and demand and seeing um, maybe um, the, the landlords couldn't afford always to improve the houses they had. It wasn't just a sort of cartoon Marxist struggle between tenant and landlord. And King moved over into the right to buy housing in heretofore segregated neighborhoods, which is a different approach. And I always wondered whether Ruther um, had encouraged that too. Um, I think King saw that home ownership would be good for African Americans as it is good for all Americans and that the class struggle of the rent tenant is kind of a pantomime often I- I- enjoyable to, um, if for if good press, the evil landlord, you know, often Jewish by the way, right. Oh. Parodyable. Uh, it was kind of a good, good theater, but the best thing for African Americans was to have assets. And buying allowed them to have those assets.
1: And that's what Ruther was hoping to bring people into the middle class. That was one of his.
2: He went, well, yeah, I, Ruther had a, cl-. it's interesting. Ruther's way of bringing workers in the UAW into the middle class was resting higher pay out of automakers. That was his thought. That didn't turn out to be a great idea because, because of the, the the strong pressure of American labor unions and because of the weakness Um, Weakness to the point of complicity of the automakers, we suddenly paid workers too much. That is, why do I say too much? Because that too much left an opening to foreign competitors. And in the book, one of the characters is the company Toyota, which, um, and while Walter Ruther was busy at, I don't know, the Democratic National Convention trying to get a candidate he liked nominated, uh, that would be 68. Well, Toyota cars were rolling off the dock in California, um, and those cars were lower priced. Is that because the Japanese exploited their workers, unlike U.S. workers were not exploited thanks to the defense of Nova Walter Ruther? (laughs) It's more complicated than that, because actually um, what we have learned is that the Toyota assembly line was more pleasant sometimes often than the u.s assembly line because workers were allowed to have a say they could even stop the assembly line in um, improving the process Um, whereas in america if you wanted to get a part for an assembly line because it broke down, the union became the obstacle because the, let's see, the assembly line union had to call the electrician's union and the electrician's union had to come running over. And sometimes it took two hours and the assembly line would be shut down in those hours. And those were two hours to have a cigarette or coffee or whatever (laughs) that the workers got. So that is to say the formality of our union rituals got in the way of our productivity in the 1960s in a way um, we, we didn't quite understand. Um, and the result of the union company conflict slash dance was that we had cars that weren't that great for the money as well. The quality of the car um, is important to know. People like Japanese cars because they were cheaper, but they came also to like them because they were better made. And, and I do believe that had to do with our unions. At Toyota, there were unions in Japan, but not the kind of powerhouses we had in the United States at that time. Well, and speaking
1: of unions, one of the fascinating things that changed in the course of Ruther's life, and certainly in the decades after his death in 1970, was the rise of of government unions versus big industrial unions. And one of the one of the again one of the major players in your book played a crucial role in that change in American society, and that was Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And you write of Moynihan's again we discussed Moynihan a little bit, but you write about one of the one of the key as one of the key accomplishments or one of the key um, achievement, I guess I wouldn't say accomplishments for me, but one of the, the major changes that he rendered in American society was, you write, of uh, his relationship with Kennedy, and you write, President Kennedy's and Moynihan's executive order 10988 long ago had transformed once weak public sector unions into titans. And that, I'd like to ask if if the Supreme Court decision Janus versus American Federation of State County Municipal Employees Council 31 which held that public sector unions may no longer extract agency fees from non-consenting employees, has that given you any hope that public sector unions may not remain quite so dominant in public policy debates as they have been? Because well,
2: well, yeah, I wouldn't say hope. Um, I because I'm really not engaging on current policy, but I would say it, it's a big change. Yeah, w- what happened was, I mean, this story is in a great society. It. The story of Moynihan is he did things he thought were little that turned out out to have big consequences, consequences which um, were negative for many Americans. So you you imagine an intellectual, the most darling kind, Uh, Time magazine called Moynihan a super elf, White House super elf, because he was very tall, a little bow tie, and he was always merry, uh, at least, you know, in public. and. Just a mind that bubbled like champagne, it made you feel like you'd had a cocktail, elevated your own IQ when you talked to him. One of those people, very lovable, and um, also not. Um not arrogant in the way that some other figures were ready to admit mistakes. He believed, as Edmund Burke did, and there's a a fellow named Greg Wiener who wrote a book about it, that that Moynihan had a Burkean aspect that government evolved incrementally and that lawmakers learn from their mistakes and we should give them time to do so. Specifically, what was 10988? Nobody involved in 10988 thought it was very serious. Um, it made the possibility of public sector unions uh, in the federal government. It was signed by JFK on an afternoon. He had a lot of other things on his mind, including his daughter Caroline, as maybe something with a pony uh, uh, at the White House, as Moynihan reports in oral history of, of, of these scenes. Anyhow, um, they said, well, this will permit public sector unions. And Moynihan um, thought this was a good compromise with more conservative uh, People maybe some in the Democratic Party and some Republicans because at 10988 did not give public sector unions the right to strike. So it was just kind of well, they're already in some associations. Why can't they be in unions? Uh, What's wrong with that? We can negotiate with them. It will be efficient. But what 109.8 did was set a trend. When the federal government says something is okay, well, the states say it's okay, too. And the unions that grew in the United States from that period were public sector unions. If you look at the makeup of public be private, in those days, public sector unions, well, there weren't very many people in them compared to the mighty private sector unions. That switched. Private sector unions have faded as both workers and companies have recognized uh, their, their counterproductive presence, are often counterproductive, and public sector unions have grown. Um, think of teachers unions as well. Um, so you think of associations of teachers or public sector workers, federal, state, local, converting from association to union, more belligerent sounding and demanding a lot. Um, what's an example of a negative consequence? The, the post office, um, which was encouraged by 10988, um, encouraged by, though not you know, the the order you know, different orders covered different groups. But the post office took courage and demanded higher wages. That may help to make the price of the stamps go up. Um so all this all all this happened. Another um Moynihan inadvertency was a memo he wrote about government architecture and he said we need to give architects more of a voice and say about government architecture because they know what's beautiful what's the implication that sounds nice let the government have some good architects but the architecture uh, that was invited in by the Kennedy and Johnson uh, administrations was really rough modern architecture, brutalism. So when you look at a building like HUD in Washington, which no one likes, Jack Kemp called it multiple floors of basement, um, that was the grand architecture invited in um, by the um, document, the policy that Moynihan wrote. Um, Again, thinking sort of benign and nice. Um, And uh, the face of Washington is changed for the worse by Moynihan's policy letter. It's amazing how
1: his, his simple memos could uh, create such had such a huge impact, just on the basis of of, of, a, of a fairly at that time in his career fairly low level or mid level bureaucrat. He wasn't even he wasn't even the great prominence that he had
2: later. Well, but that's one, what I mean by that's what I mean by saying people pick their class. It, Moynihan associate was super bright. He's but the presidents are usually super bright as well. Otherwise, they wouldn't be president. Um, Super bright people like to have their brain tickled, their brain itches, and they're willing to talk to people they otherwise wouldn't talk to just to have their brain scratched, particularly if if they're very stressed. Presidents are always stressed. They're in a cauldron. Uh, And having Moynihan, Nixon said, was like a cocktail, I think. I'm I'm trying to think. I don't have the text in front of me. Uh, But everyone felt that way. Uh, Everyone. Johnson, Johnson. you know, Johnson somewhat, Nixon a lot, um, the people Moynihan work with. Um, Moynihan was also there at the writing of the Economic Opportunity Act, which created the Shriver office, which is where Harrington was. And in fact, Harrington and Moynihan were friends. Became friends there, and Harrington was not present at the signing of the law. Maybe they said they didn't want a socialist after all. Present that would be Harrington and Moynihan. Everyone got a pen, who had participated in the drafting of the law, and Moynihan went round the line twice and collected one for his friend <laughs> Harrington because he felt bad. This fellow had worked with us; he deserved one too. Uh, so, so you want to imagine the great need of people to be around people who keep them thinking and how, how that actually affects policy. Well, it's interesting too,
1: you say in the book that Moynihan bravely at that point jo- joined the Nixon administration because he felt that he could make an, an impact, he could get things done, he could better people's lives. And his colleagues in, in in the Ivy League, particularly at Harvard, were dismayed and felt that he was not, that he was betraying his his liberal values and so forth. But he was very adamant. He said, you can either be in the game and you can make things better or you can isolate yourselves and just remain the ivory tower. And that was
2: right. The life of the mind. He <laughs> said, well, congratulations. <laughs> That's interesting. But, but you're not, and what's what uh, Moynihan is important. Cause he was the original canceled American. It, it, Moynihan wrote a book, a, a document actually about, um, the African-American family. And he, he himself had grown up fatherless, mm. uh, switching fathers a few times, no father, and he knew what cost his family had paid for that, what he himself had paid for not having a father. And he observed, he was basically a sociologist um, with data, that African-American families often lacked a father. And he thought that was important and that it made it hard for African-Americans to rise, to, to finish college, to start college, to finish high school, and so on. Remember, this is another era. And he wrote this, and it's true, out of his own big heart, we're all alike, we're missing a father. Um, And he was shunned by the civil rights establishment. And, you know, canceled people are desperate people. And he said, well, I'm not gonna accept that shunning. Uh, A new president has come along. He's more centrist than you guys think. That would be Nixon. And and Nixon was too centrist for some of us. I'm going to work for him and get something done. I don't care about this canceling business. I mean, it was very cruel. We think people are cruel today. But there was a conference on civil rights and and the executive uh, coward who led it said uh got up and said um welcome i'm going to tell you i'm not sure and there's no person such as daniel patrick moynihan exists that is i don't want this conference to be spooked um, by a controversial figure well moynihan had done the work that led to that conference of course he wasn't invited that that hurts a lot particularly for great intellects who have a fair amount of vanity um and he wanted to try again and he was willing to go with nixon well uh, one could say good for him." He, he really wanted to help Americans, including African-Americans, and he, he would have to live with it if he was unpopular.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Well, Well, you speak about Moynihan's concern about fathers and the fact that many of the liberal policies were counterproductive in that way. And you write very movingly in the book, I just want to read this passage, that this was the kind of thing that he opposed. It said, you're talking about St. Louis in particular, but this applies in other other areas of the country, social workers, even police departments, at night checking to see if fathers had secretly returned grounds for eviction. Families whose fathers did not did come, whose fathers did come for a secret visit, told children that if anyone ever asked about their fathers, they should lie. And that's it's it's fascinating that that this policy to assist people was actually destroying their families.
2: But you can understand exactly where that argument came from. And then you can see its perverse result, which is why government shouldn't make policy like in this area. What happened was the Pruitt-Igoe houses, those apartments were supposed to be for poor people. And if a family had a dad, the assumption was the dad would be working um, and it would discourage the dad from working if he had a subsidized house. So we're not going to Give these apartments to whole families. We're going to give them to moms on welfare, and then we're going to enforce that. Um, So there's a wonderful movie called The Pruitt-Igo Myth or The Myth of Pruitt-Igo about interviewing people who who told these stories. My mom had to pretend there was no dad, or even more heartbreaking, my family broke up so we could get a Pruitt-Igo apartment because in the very beginning, this massive housing project an emblem of scale in public housing in America was a desirable address for African-Americans. It was cleaner, it was newer, it had good uh, appliances in the apartments. Nobody knew that it would become um, hell in a building, which is what Pruitt-Igo did become. Um, so, So we, with the best of intentions, built some awesome housing that everyone hated. Even the architect, Yamasaki, um, uh, came, said he wished he'd never built Pruitt Igo. He also built a World Trade Center. And when I told my father about Yamasaki and the awful Pruitt Igo, it had, it had flaws um, partly forced on Yamasaki by government rules. Again, he had to get a certain density. So he, he did some things that facilitated, it turned out to facilitate crime. Um, when I told my father about all this, um, my father said, Oh, don't be too hard on Yamasaki. He was a nice man and he was <laughs> yeah. he was a nice man put in a bad situation by um by the government the, the specific thing that happened was in order to to make uh, to increase density the government wanted a lot of apartments on each floor and if you have the elevator stop on only a few floors the floors where the elevator does not stop that vestibule area outside the public area when you step out of an elevator well that can be another apartment right So that sounded wonderful. People could go up and down the stairs a flight or two if the elevators only stopped on some floors to get to their apartment. And it turned out much of the crime happened in that stairwell. That is, it was a great place for a gang to trap a lady and bother her um, and her baby with her stroller. So you you, you can imagine what what that was like. Um, All inadvertent, all promulgated. By nice men.
1: Yeah, they were. They all seem to be. There aren't. They're not. Don't seem to be any truly despicable characters. They're all well intentioned, mostly men, uh, uh, because that's the way it was at that point.
2: I just well, even though, let's mention one woman, Molly Orshansky, very interesting mm-hmm. sociologist, uh, somewhat self-made, as far as I can tell. Again, she developed the poverty measure. She developed a number we use today. She was amazing. I I don't know if everyone who supported Molly or Shansky understood that by beginning to quantify poverty, we didn't quantify it before the sixties, not in a, in the way that we do now, not the poverty number. You know, I don't know if those people understood that by creating a poverty measure, you create a lobby, Mm. the poverty lobby. Okay. That's good. Poor people get help, but it's also bad because you create um, entitlements. We have to help the poor and um, entitlements sometimes just simply sh- shackle people. It, it, you know, food stamps, food stamps for example, we, um, we always change the name of food stamps because we don't want to be associated with them, but we, everyone knows what we mean. Food stamps came out of this, this era. And um, sometimes I'm asked, aren't you cruel? You disapprove of food stamps. Um, I, I don't think anyone, I, I would answer that this way. Everyone accepts that people come to want and there's no shame in taking food stamps. If you're poor, you've come to want you're poor, you need them. You need them for your babies. Okay. But there, it is a shame. We can all agree if we expect not only ourselves, but our children and grandchildren to be on food stamps, don't we want a better life for them than that?
1: Well, uh, on, th- uh, on that note, I'd like to ask to, to connect to, to today, if that's all right, is that, um, you discuss um, the, the the issue of entitlements, and getting and getting back to Moynihan, it's kind of again your adage about um, nothing is, is 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 just forgotten. And so one of the things that is forgotten is that in this day when people want a universal basic income, that Moynihan was pressing years ago for a family assistance plan and a guaranteed income. And my reaction is, what? When when baby boomers as as baby boomers die off and millennials assume the reins of power and they don't have this historical memory, do they? Do they see the they, they see the universal basic income as, as sort of a panacea?
2: And well, that- it comes like this. Yeah, they do. Well, you don't want. To, what's the easiest thing to do with protesters? And think about it now too. It, maybe you don't agree with the protesters, right? And this was true in the '60s as well. But you want to do something or you want to be seen to do something so you can set that program aside and that problem aside and turn to other things you really like. Paying people off is regarded always as a lesser evil. Send them money. Moynihan really came to dislike social workers. He thought the social work establishment ate up much of the resources that were given to poverty. He called it Feeding the horses to feed the sparrows, so why not give the sparrows money directly? It's a lesser evil let them and money there's something enfranchising about money um compared uh, it's much you know let people pick what they're gonna eat don't let them have to choose off the food stamp list that's demeaning so so um it it sounded benign or at least like a lesser evil actually food st- the, the the guaranteed income of Moynihan didn't become law because lawmakers feared it would be too expensive, basically, and and because they feared that it would um, deter people from wanting to work. Basically, they were probably right. Um, Unfortunately, ironically, other programs such as food stamps, which were allowed to continue, created a sort of welfare culture anyhow. Um, which deterred people from wanting to work. Uh, uh, You have to go back to the 60s and say, what if we had followed the Black leader, Robert Paris Moses, who was one of the protesters, civil rights leaders at the time, who created something later called the Algebra Project. The Algebra Project worked on the premise that everyone should know algebra, and the African-American kids weren't getting the chance to learn algebra. Robert Paris Moses was a math teacher originally. And... uh, What if we had dumped billions into the algebra project and made sure that every child knows algebra no matter what, and maybe some trig? What would America look like? We didn't. Instead, we went to family payments and so on. We spent money on education, but not specifically, targetedly on algebra. And a lot of that just went to teachers and welfare establishment, teaching establishment, special ed establishment. You know, and, and so on, with the result that many kids don't still don't know algebra when they cease to be in school. So so, you know, the thing things that projects that seemed benign became more and more expensive, worked counterproductively, and there was an enormous opportunity cost. That's what's not acknowledged to um, you know, to other we lost all the other opportunities we could have had. Mm.
1: At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we're talking today with Emily Schles about her book *Great Society: New History*. And Emily, you, you were speaking about the, the 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 desire of many policymakers to seem to be doing something, to be taking action and being proactive. And in the chapter of your book entitled *Scarcity Burns Agonistes*, you depict this. This is economic policy in the case of of what what a shambles <laughs> the Nixon administration's policies on wage and price controls were and what liberal policies that people who presented themselves or considered themselves to be conservatives came up with, because they were caught up in the thrill of seeming to be doing something. And you write interest fascinatingly about, this was sort of an intellectually incoherent era, that these men were just abandoning any sort of of logical thinking or their own principles, because they wanted to be seen as as dynamic leaders and so forth. Could you just, people like George Shultz and Arthur Burns, I wonder if you could discuss that period a little bit.
2: Well, a politician has a term. If he wasn't elected, maybe he's a policy person. He lives within the term of his executive. Four years for Nixon, will we get another four years we're talking about here? And um, Nixon um, was not interested in economics, but he did want good numbers before the election in 1972. So he put together a policy that uh, he thought would stimulate the economy just enough to get him reelected and also make peace with China, right? Open China and make peace with it. And Vietnam, um, All you know, again, it was a lesser evil to him. And he summoned great economic minds. And Nixon really liked interesting minds and they worked for him to Camp David. Um, and there, one of his oldest advisors, Arthur Burns, the Fed chairman, um, Someone he'd known long ago um, and liked. Uh, Burns was the one who told him how the election in 1960, which Nixon lost, would come out. It, it really depended on the economy. And if you know there wasn't enough money around, then the Republican would lose um Nixon, Nixon brought Burns, his Fed chairman, to Camp David with a bunch of others and got Burns to sign off on a policy Burns, uh, in his right mind, wouldn't have agreed to. And George Shultz, a younger man then, wouldn't have agreed to. He was there and signed off on it. And the list goes on. Other serious economic thinkers all signed off on what was basically a silly inflationary policy that for sure set the stage for stagflation and the absolute purgatory that was the 1970s it was yeah it
1: was fascinating too that that who he listened to who uh, there uh, one of the interesting things in your book is is how Nixon and Johnson would would be enamored of these thinkers and then they would grow disenchanted and 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 at some point, or or just drop them, or just scheme against them. In particularly Nixon's case, but examples of that were again jo- Johnson with Sergeant Shriver that he seemed to just abandon sort of distance himself over the years from Shriver, and Shriver sort of he just sent him off to France to be an ambassador to France and so forth. And um, one of, the, one of the characters in your book that I, I'd just like to touch on briefly, that it's a, it's a figure that's almost completely forgotten and also a, a, a type of, of political figure that we don't see anymore. And that's a liberal Republican, Everett Dirksen. I wonder if you could speak about him a little bit.
2: Well, I really liked Dirksen. Um, I didn't know him, shame on me, very well. Uh, uh, we've heard of the Dirksen building. I'm from Illinois too, where he was from. But Dirksen helped out with the civil rights laws Uh, it's another part of our uh, memory that's gone is that uh, black americans were helped by republicans in the 60s Mm. and when you go back and look at the votes often it was the southern democrats who didn't like the civil rights laws particularly more than we remember this was not a democrat republican issue civil rights there there were differences anyway dirksen um helped with passage of civil rights laws, but he blocked passage of other laws. Um, and, uh, you know- Which uh, is the right to, he
1: wanted to protect the right to work policy. For
2: yeah, particularly one that, that again, almost is in none of, none of the histories of the period, but was probably the most significant sort of legislative event. In the United States, it used to be long ago, from the New Deal, that all states were union states, and you there were closed shops. If you wanted to work somewhere, you had to be accepted into the union there, and maybe even be brought in by the union to work there. Um, then, after World War II, we saw that was a little too aggressive, and we wrote Taft-Hartley, a law that made union membership uh, mandatory. Union membership. I'm oversimplifying, but basically. Uh, an option for states. They could either follow that rule or they could opt out and become so-called right-to-work states. Um, well, a lot of states did. And those states saw economic growth. There are plenty of charts in the back of the book. In the end, more economic growth. And um, and so we had a sort of suddenly a natural experiment whereby states without right-to-work were growing faster. And of course, companies were opening factories there and not, not in... Um, not in states where there was no right to work. Um, So, well, this is an existential challenge to unions, and they tried to end right to work, and Dirksen would not back them. And the votes, Johnson did not get the votes to end right to work. Therefore, the experiment, the natural experiment of right to work states versus old-fashioned, heavily unionized states continued, and that was the cause of the, the dying off of the private sector union in the United States. Many of us would uh, um, say, wow, um, probably a good thing because it's always useful to have experiments and to see th- uh, rules different in one state to another. Then you can learn something. We wouldn't have had the chance to learn if all our states had been unionized heavily as they were before Taft-Hartley. So, so Dirksen, um, Johnson felt let down by Dirksen. He had promised the unions he would get rid of right to work. It was right there on the agenda. He failed to
1: well another another figure of your book speaking of of um leaders of that time that that were kind of forgotten that one of them is Tom Hayden. and I think what's interesting as I read the book and I was thinking of the Black Lives Matter movement and the tensions between black the black activists themselves and the white liberals that are trying to wham on to <laughs> Black Lives Matter in order to kind of keep their own relevancy in some ways. it seems that uh, you you talk about um you have a very, there are quite a few funny line character, um, character um, portrayals in your book. One of them is we write, Tom Hayden spent the fall of 1965 losing elections. They were New Jersey state and county elections. You go on to say, though Hayden wanted to organize Black Newark, Black Newark did not necessarily want to be organized by him. Could you tell us a little about the, the tensions between Hayden and, and also the, the role that um, Walter Ruther played in cultivating Hayden?
2: Well, another surprise when I was writing Great Society came when I covered the famous, historic meeting at Port Huron of student radicals. That's where they wrote the Port Huron Statement, um, which became very, very famous. um, And uh, they said, you know, we're a new generation. They didn't call it manifesto because that sounded a little too much like communism, but they mm. um, they wrote their document, the Port Huron document. Um, they all got together. Many, uh, these were the founders of Students for a Democratic Society, which later uh, splintered off with violent groups. Um, and uh, Hayden is a famous name himself. He was a University of Michigan student, a newspaper editor, had been down to the South um, and participated in civil rights struggles. Um, and what I, the big surprise I had, um, and then as a character throughout the book, the big surprise I had uh, regarding Port Huron was it turned out to be a sponsored project, not a student's rise up kind of uninhibitedly and without support, spontaneously gather at Port Huron. Because the Port Huron camp where they met was a union set of buildings on the, like, some cabins by, like, on by a union. They were sponsored by the union. He was he and the other kids uh, there, or as Walter Ruther called them kids, young adults there, were sponsored by Walter Ruther. So it wasn't so darn spontaneous. Ruther, the union leader, thought it would be nice for there to be a radical youth wing of the UAW, and this was his vision of it. They got money from Walter Ruther. The checks exist there in the records at various points. Um And one of the things the unions wanted, as the federal government wanted, was to do community action, which is also um, in the discussion today. That is, go to communities and help people um, uh, express their right to vote, express their other rights, not be downtrodden, you know, um, begin to participate in the political process. Okay, that's great. Um, and Hayden was running such a project in Newark. Um, it wasn't going very well because African-Americans didn't want to be organized by him. They might want to organize, but they didn't want to be organized by him. Um, and he, again, emphasized things like rent. Uh, and rent, well, it's, it, it's a class struggle. Um, the more important thing might be economic um, growth, which was already beginning to fade in Newark once a powerhouse. Hayden wasn't emphasizing that, and he failed. Um, so he kind of took a an intellectual vacation, literally, and went to look at socialist nations, and it ended up in not only um, Eastern Europe, but also Moscow, Beijing, and Hanoi to inspect um, the, the other side of the war, right, on the other side. Um, and he wasn't alone. But when they saw that their urban action didn't work, many of the um, SDS people and so on switched to war protest.
1: Well, I think one thing that was fascinating in your book that's that's diametrically different from now is that um, Democratic mayors, notably Richard Daly of Chicago, were appalled by many of, this, of the attitude of Sergeant Shriver and so forth that the federal government was actually um, endorsing and funding community activism that the Democratic mayors of that era found very disruptive. And the opposite seems to be the case that the Trump administration is trying to, 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 to control some of the excesses of the uh, Antifa in particular demonstrations. And in, in the, but now the Democratic mayors are seeming to actually embrace the activists as opposed to their predecessors decades ago, which is kind of fascinating. Well,
2: it's, it's not really a contrast. I mean, Mayor Daly had activists, Mayor Yorty of um, Los Angeles, where Watts happened, had activists. Um, they liked activists. They considered themselves, as hard as it is to imagine, even daily reformers. They had poverty offices. What upset them was who elected Johnson in 1964? Well, Richard J. Daly. Who elected Kennedy? Certainly, Richard J. Daly. Maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe even uh, too much input from Daly on that outcome. Well, so what they expected was a check for their poverty offices from the federal government. And Daly actually packaged up all his poverty ideas and put them in a box and sent them to Washington. Instead, Shriver, who is more interested in people like Michael Harrington than Richard J. Daly, came up with his own poverty plans, bypassed the extant municipal poverty organizations, and gave money to new groups who politically opposed the sitting mayors. So I have a chapter called The Revolt of the Mayors. They were hmm. furious. Um, and uh, it, 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 wait a minute, I helped you, you're not helping me. In fact, you're helping radicals. Oh my gosh, um, that's not gonna work out well in our in our town or state. So it's very funny, and that is often what happens. Washington has a different idea what to do with dedicated money than a mayor would. And, and I, I try to give some sympathy to the mayors because the mayors have the advantage of, one, having been elected, Yes. In the place they're administering, so someone like them. And two, being very close to the ground and knowing actually what was needed. The backdrop to Watts was a squabble between Mayor Yorty and the Poverty Office, Sergeant Shriver. It was very frustrating. Shriver didn't want to give money to Yorty's projects. Yorty didn't want Shriver's project. Money that was promised didn't come. The African-Americans and Watts were pretty unhappy about that. They knew that it was supposed to come and create, for example, summer jobs. They rioted. Which I had never known. I mean, I thought it was just all about Martin Luther King and, and a general African American awakening, but this money squabble actually adversely affected. Watson made the riots more possible. Was a factor. Well, well
1: um, I've taken up a lot of your time, Emily. And one of the one of the the last, one of the last questions I'd like to ask is: it, the the book is a is is quite an indictment of things that went wrong, and it's very tragic because so much of it, because it was all so well-intentioned and it just, but it just was so, so, I mean, to use, to use Trump's American carnage, I mean, there was a lot of, of, of wreckage left behind. Is there anything that you would praise about the Great Society? What programs do you, in your view, actually worked? And what sections of your book would you want policymakers and congresspeople to read in particular? Oh,
2: I, I thing. really think the Arthur Burns part, the, I'm very lucky that me, a number of economists have taken up great society and looked at the econ because uh, one of the things that I indict is Keynesianism or pro, or um, neo-Keynesianism. Um, but uh, th- those laws that were about opportunity were welcome, important, and late in coming. Shame on us they hadn't come before. If eight in 10 African-Americans in a in a county in Mississippi, can't vote. Um, there's something terribly wrong, which is what was going on. Um, so, m- Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, maybe um, uh, uh, things like that. Uh, um, it's which, not, which but you what, pointed out the Republicans
1: right. were 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 architects <laughs> of,
2: yeah. We're co architects,
1: co architects, okay. yeah.
2: yeah. And what wasn't right, where the 60s policy turned, where the great society went wrong, is to shift from equality quality of opportunity to equality quality of result as a demand. It's impossible to get a quality of result. The government will go bankrupt seeking it. It did in the 60s. It will again. And it's, it's counterproductive because people are uneven and those who rise need to participate in that rise, not just be given it. That's really what the 60s taught us so um that shift is one that that played a great role in our in our problem today the shift to a quality of result um the leveling what would be called leveling um in 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 historical terms the idea that you always have to change something if you get different outcomes with different people and and there's a specific um Speech Johnson gave at Howard University, in which Moynihan participated, where he said, I'm not just going to go for equality of opportunity anymore. I'm going to go for a result. um, And uh, I need to better. uh, um, And it's a striking contrast. I'm chairman of the Calvin Coolidge Foundation. Coolidge was an important appreciator of civil rights. He made all Indian Americans, Native Americans, citizens. He was appalled when people in his party said that African-Americans couldn't run for Congress and said so publicly. And he backed Howard University, the historically African-American college, and went there and gave a speech and signed off on an appropriation for the creation of a medical school there. Um, that is, he said, African-Americans should and can be professionals. And if they don't have enough schools, we'll support that. That's quite a different thing to what Johnson said when speaking at the same university. of I guess 40 years or so later. Um, so very, very different message to African-Americans. And if you listen to Johnson's, uh, reception, if you listen to the whole, the whole Johnson speech at Howard is on tape, you'll hear some ambivalence in his hosts. Uh, they don't quite say what he says. They're more cautious, the, the, the host from Howard.
1: Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now?
2: I'm not sure. I'm taking suggestions, but <laughs> the, the, so maybe you have one. The, the, I, I'm working on a book that would sum up all the books I've written about the 20th century. Um, is so a, a short version of those books because I've written the 20s through my biography of Calvin Coolidge, whom I much admire. Um, the 30s in Forgotten Men, and now the 60s. Um, I'm also thinking about a book called The Tragedy of the Commons, which is really what, what's going on now is. Our, we are trashing our shared space. And why that tragedy occurs I'm also thinking of a short biography of Tocqueville. So you would call that what we lost because it's that America we're trashing when, when we build great national programs such as New Deal, Great Society, or whatever we're going to build now.
1: When you say shared space, you, you mean literal, literally like public
2: spaces, parks, or do you mean? I mean, uh, for example, cities which um, have revived in past decades um, mm-hmm. and come to be a place America, you know, in America, that's all gated communities is creepy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and all of a sudden right now, gated communities are, are popular um, more popular than before. All right. That's one, that's one kind of shared space, but, but uh, there are plenty of other shared spaces we have um, that we should pr- preserving can if we work together town squares town parks where protests are um and instead what's happening is uh, they're getting trashed by one party or the other and no mm. one wants to go there yes
1: that's true. And, and it's, it, it, there is and with the coronavirus, there's a rise of return to suburbia that people think, well, I don't want to be on a public bus because it's a site of infection. I don't want to be in a, in a large apartment building or where I have to,
2: as you say, ride the elevator and, and so forth. And that's a national tragedy because we have come together as a country in many ways. Um, it's, not a, you know, it's not a necessary tragedy. Everyone is doing better than we were, say, in the 60s. Um so um, what I think is, the answer is, is poverty, uh, excuse me, is pr- property rights. Um, that's an unpopular thing to say now, but I still believe it because it's what the evidence suggests.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because we'll see what happens, because certainly Biden is, public housing is, is much on their agenda. Basically, they're saying, let's build more public housing. And as a result of reading your book, I thought, Let's not encourage more public housing, <laughs> at least not at least not until you can take care of the housing stock we've got, because it's just it's, it's, as you as you point out, so much of it is just neg- benign neglect. Another Moynihan phrase, I guess. Well, thank you very much, and with that, I will just thank the writer we've been talking to today, Emily Schles, author of the book Great Society: A New History. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye, bye. Thank you.